Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Lara Alleluia Reis, a scientist at the RFF CMCC European Institute on Economics and the Environment, or EIEE. Uh, Lara has previously joined us on Resources Radio, but for those who may have missed that prior conversation, a quick reminder on her background. She holds multiple advanced engineering degrees, and as a researcher, she's particularly interested in climate change, integrated assessment approaches, environmental statistics, energy policy, environmental economics, and air pollution. So Lara is back on the show today to discuss work that she and her EIEE colleague Max Tavoni, who listeners may also recognize as a previous Resources Radio guest, um, that she and Max have published on international climate commitments made at COP26 in Glasgow. The topic of our discussion today is, in fact, will those pledges add up to enough to keep warming to two degrees Celsius if fully implemented? So stay with us as we discuss. Hi, Lara. Welcome back to the show. Thanks again for joining me to discuss uh, some new research. Thanks. Happy to be back. <laughs> Thanks for having me here. Sure. Uh, well, since we've asked you to introduce yourself previously in sort of a, a professional and maybe a little bit of a personal context, I wanted to start with a, a different get-to-know-you question this time around. So a little whimsical, but I'll ask, what are your top two or three maybe favorite travel destinations in Europe? <laughs> Okay, so well, I'm I'm from Portugal, so I'm gonna do some shameless uh, publicity to to my birth country. Okay, so I would say the Azores is is an amazing is an amazing archipelago in the middle of the Atlantic, um, and it's just a lost place. I think time stops there when you go there, and it's beautiful for hikes and ocean uh, views, and it's, it's just amazing an amazing place to get lost. Then I would say Lisbon is the city where I was born. It's just, I think it's my favorite city ever so far. I've never been in a capital where the sky is so blue. It, 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 it is really, I, I'm telling you, it's really blue there. And there's this breeze that is really amazing. So I would say Lisbon too. And then I would end up with the Alps. You know, recently there was this paper where we have achieved some kind of no return point on the snowpack in the Alps. So I think it's, it's, it's being lost, actually. It's one of the, you know, the ultimate European beauties. And it's just going to change. I don't know. Maybe it will change for even more beautiful. But I, it's, it is already so beautiful that I, I wish it could, could stay like that. So if you're around and if you want, would like to visit, just please visit by bike or by, or by walk so that you don't aggravate the problem even more. But, you know, lately I've been struggling. I've been living here for some time now and I've been struggling to find snow for my kids to play with. And we live so close to the Alps and we've seen, I've seen with my own eyes, the landscape changing and it's irreversibly changing. So I really just hope we can somehow stop that or even reverse that. It's just such a beautiful place. So the Alps, yeah. French Alps, Italian Alps, Austrian Alps, whatever you like the most. Fantastic. Uh, I 
I'm finding myself wishing we were having a whole podcast just on that conversation. But we'll talk about climate change, too. Uh, and 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 yet also, uh, we will continue the theme of sort of great travel destinations in Europe, because the work that we're talking about today is titled Glasgow to Paris, the impact of the Glasgow commitments for the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, this was recently published in the journal iScience. And just uh, as a reminder, both Glasgow and Paris were hosts to relatively recent Conference of the Party meetings, or COPs, that are hosted by the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. These are kind of the big annual meetings uh, where a lot of negotiations happen around international climate commitments. And so as a kind of foundational question, can you remind us kind of broadly of the timing of those two particular meetings and, and why they were important? Yes. So... Paris uh, happened in 2015. It was the COP, so Conference of the Parties uh, number 21. And five years later, um, Glasgow happened, uh, the, so by the COP 26. And so in Paris, we, we started this kind of new process, um, the pledging review process, where countries would voluntarily pledge, make their, their, their redu emission reduction pledges. And then there would be a stock take of all of those pledges. And there would be a review, like, let's say, to, to say, were those pledges enough? And the idea is that every stock take we do, we raise ambition. So every uh, new process, so every five years, we would commit to new targets and these targets would be ever more ambitious. Um, and so the Paris marked that, that initiation with the INDC, so the intended national determined contribution. So each country came, and I remember at the beginning, the periods leading to that meeting, I was online already trying to model those, and there was a rain of, of INDCs. It started with some 30 INDCs, then 50, and then suddenly there was hundreds, hundreds of the INDCs that we need to review. Um, and so these were, and it was clear by then already that these were not enough, but it was the first step that happened in Paris. Another big thing that happened in Paris was that the world actually agreed that we would need to, to keep um, warming levels to well below 2 degrees and pursue efforts to achieve the 1.5. And that's where the 1.5 really gained momentum. In Glasgow, we had a new stock take and we saw new uh, new commitments and major commitments, especially in the meeting that preceded the, 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 the COP, so the Conference of the Parties, there was this G20 meeting where uh, some of the richest nations in the world got together. And this was maybe also created by some momentum with the new US administration. So the Biden administration had just kicked in. So the US was back in the climate game and it was pledging net zero by 2050. Uh, the European Union had already done it. And so we, Japan and South Korea as well, but we also had other countries, important countries, uh, big emitter nations committing to, to these targets. So we had major economies committing to these targets. So th there was other things that were important that happened at Glasgow. So for example, there was a coal phase-out pledge, so we had more than 40 countries. Unfortunately, China was not in there yet, but some big coal-dependent countries like Poland that did commit to, to, to phase-out coal. We had deforestation targets, for example. Many countries, more than 100, including Brazil, pledged on to, to reverse or to at least end deforestation if, and, if possible, to reverse the deforestation. And then the big elephant in the room that we always talk is transversal to all the COPs, all the Conference of the Parties, which is this Article 6. So we're, we're uh, let's say... Higher income countries put financing, climate finance money on the table so that lower income countries can assess this finance and, and, and finance their, their own decarbonization. And, and there were also steps done 
uh, at COP26 towards towards um, towards increasing financing. Some countries actually doubled the climate financing efforts, and so this was also important in that sense. Another one that was very important, and it came from from the conversations that the information that was uh, uh, coming out from the IPCC latest um, and uh, assessment report in the assessment report six was a meeting pledge. So we had more than 100 countries, including USA, for example, pledging to reduce 30% of methane emissions uh, from 2020 levels. This was, of course, everything before the, the conflict in, um, in Ukraine and Russia came out. So we, ha all, we all have to see to which extent this harmed these pledges or not. But these were, let's say, the big differences. So we did get a raising ambition from Paris to Glasgow, which was important. Well, that's a really great rundown of sort of the types of new pledges that were made at Glasgow and, and the volume of them. But they seem quite heterogeneous, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Uh, some of them are about, you know, phase outs of specific um, fuels, specific types of uh, emissions reductions. Some of them are kind of broadly pledges around um, overall emissions levels by certain timeframes. So is it fair to say that they are, yeah, is heterogeneous kind of the right word for the types of pledges? And and how do you think about that heterogeneity as you're looking to um, analyze across that that whole range of different types of pledges? Yes, indeed, they are, they are heterogeneous and they bring to the table also uh, uncertainty. So if on one hand we know, okay, this is what they're planning to, to reduce on emissions, not all of them are clear on are are these net zero pledges on just CO2. For example, China was clear on this. It was net zero carbon by 2060. But India and Russia were not so clear. So for me, it's not clear if they pledge climate net zero. That means including all the greenhouse gases or if this were just carbon. For some countries like India, um, Russia, methane emissions, for example, would be hard to abate uh, because they have other types of sources, uh, sources that are harder to abate. So countries at some point, they can play with this uh, with this level of concept and then there's, there's some subjectivity there. It makes it hard for us modelers to, to put it into models, but there's indeed more, more uncertainty that is being added to that, uh, especially we're talking about major economies, India, China, and Russia. Uh, the other thing is that, of course, these are very far in the future, 2050, 2060 for Saudi Arabia, and for, for, um, for Russia and China, and India, 2070. So these are way far in the future, so one could eventually say, yeah, okay, but in the meantime, what's going to happen? That, that is this conflict. So we have now China and India kind of surfing on this lower, um, probably lower prices that they are getting from Russia. And this, these are, um, let's say, uh, depleting their carbon budget. So these are very far in the future and they, they don't commit to a certain carbon budget. That is, they commit to reduce by that year. So we don't know what they will do until then, uh, which is something that we would not like, uh, not like to have, of course. What is important here is not the quantity of countries. Of course, we want everybody to participate for, for many reasons, but it's not, it's not the same thing if we have five countries pledging to net zero and five of these countries are the USA, uh, India and China, or if we have 100 in India and China and USA are not there. So it's not just about the number of countries that have pledged uh, um, net zero, 
Uh, and it's true that the COP in Glasgow did accelerate this race. This kind of a, this very good net zero race where countries are trying to pledge to see who gets uh, to win the race of the net zero. And it creates a certain momentum that is very important. But it's very important also the contribution from these major emitters, these major economies that are giving, let's say, that are creating momentum. This is very important, yeah. Hmm. Really interesting. Well, and and you you mentioned the modeling, and um, I do want to talk a little bit more about that. And I, I really appreciate the context that you gave around kind of the levels of uncertainty that are embedded in the task that you and Max took on. And, you know, you were conducting this research to understand the impact of these net zero commitments made at Glasgow on kind of these overall tr- emissions trajectories. And then, as you mentioned, you know, there are these critical temperature scenarios that are consistent with the Paris Agreement as well. So are the pledges made at Glasgow, getting us on emissions trajectories that will be consistent with those temperature scenarios. So to do this, you modeled as much as you could in the in the which model, which I think was probably probably featured in the last time you were on the podcast. But I wonder if you could just kind of remind us of that model's capabilities, what that model is and what it does, and why it was well suited to the task of kind of trying to understand what these um, commitments might result in. Okay, so the which model is an integrated assessment model. Uh, it's one of the one of the contributors to the IPCC assessment report six, so the latest uh, assessment report of the IPCC. One of the main reasons why it was built is actually to assess this type of policy. So it was built to assess the impacts of climate policy. So what we do is we take stock, we try to take stock of all the pledges and energy policy that are going on in the world. This is very difficult, again, it adds a lot of uncertainty to the table because some were declared uh, only on a press conference, some you can find them in, in policy documents, some are probably in a language that we cannot, we, we are not able to find. You find some information, but it's not always clear if this is already in law, if it's just uh, something that is going to be proposed in 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 in, in, in assembly to the country or uh, and so on. So there is uncertainty to this. So what we try to do is to collect these pledges, to kind of categorize them into, uh, let's say, uh, realistically more reliable pledges, less reliable pledges, to aggregate them at the regions of the WICH model. These are macro regions. We have 17 macro regions in the, in the WICH model for this study. And then we take stock of everything and we see which temperature targets we get. We look at both temperature targets and carbon budget. So a carbon budget is kind of the amount of carbon you are allowed to emit. And once you've depleted that budget, you, you cannot, you, you, you have to emit zero. Your emissions need, need to be zero. Um, and so what we do to, to, to look at temperature is that we have this reduced form climate model called, called Magic C. And it basically takes all the emissions from the witch model that resulted from these pledges and looks at what would be the temperature increase by 2100. Uh, it, one of the features of the model that's also important is that the model is, has perfect foresight. That is, for example, is able to anticipate investments because we know by the time you invest until the time the investment actually realizes into some technology working takes some time. And so therefore, the model is, 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 is somehow able to see that it needs to invest before in order to realize these emission reductions afterwards. So this is what, one of the important um, features of the model. Right. Okay. Well, let's talk about the scenarios then that that you and Max chose to model. So um, I believe you started with a a current policy baseline. And I'm going to put current policy in quotes because as as you've noted, the level of specificity of current policy is 
varied and requires some interpretation. So maybe you can just talk us through kind of what that, that quote, current policy baseline includes, and then a little bit about how your subsequent modeling scenarios differ from that baseline. Okay. So indeed, this is a great... <laughs> A great uh, team for study as well. What, what would be uh, what would be our uh, say benchmark of, of current policies? What we try to do here is to take again take stock of all the policies that are there, especially in 2020, uh, and try to extrapolate those policies into the future, saying at least we will not do worse than that um, per energy consumed. Okay, so these are kind of a taking stock of all the policies that exist and extrapolating that in the future. These are way better than what we used to have as BAU scenarios. So now there's a little bit of policy in our BAU, so business as usual scenario. These are policies that are currently being implemented and so we expect that they will realize. And then for Glasgow scenarios, we did two types of, of scenarios. So because you always have to assume, okay, these were the countries that pledge, but in a limit extreme case, you could also say, okay, we are reducing, big economies are reducing this much, but okay, this is an ultimate extreme example. Other, the other countries that didn't pledge anything could just make up for, for the emissions that they reduced. And we could be back in the same point. So you have to assume that something will happen. So what we do is, is we, we take back to the study we did on INDCs, we updated the INDCs, and we look at what would be the implicit carbon price that they have to achieve those emissions in 2030, and we try to extrapolate that in the future according to how rich this country is, so or this region is. So we take income per capita, and the, their effort grows as their income per capita grows. This is one of the scenarios. The other scenarios that we say we start from their effort in 2030, which for some countries may be close to zero, and we say, okay, you're going to converge to a level of effort that is the average of the whole world, for example, or the whole OECD region in this case. And this is, of course, a more extreme scenario. But it's two ways of thinking of a narrative that is plausible somehow, that we assume that countries will somehow at least keep up with what they promised already. And then, of course, we have the Paris scenario, which is the, 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 the scenario in which we just achieve the well below two degrees with a very high probability uh, and we do that by imposing a carbon budget of a uh, thousand gigaton per CO2. And we say, um, and we, we do that, and that, that is done in a cost effective way. Let's say we, we use a global uh, carbon price, and so the model decides to reduce there where the marginal abatement cost is the lowest. Okay, so the, the model tries to optimize welfare all the time for all the regions at the same time that it's trying to meet its pledges. These were the scenarios we, we looked at. And they are very different, of course, from current policies because all of them imply either um, uh, net zero, uncoordinated net zero pledges, which are the Glasgow pledges, or a coordinated action that will achieve the, the ultimate temperature goal by the end of the century. Right. Um, I'd love to ask you just a few follow-up questions on those different scenarios. So I believe you mentioned kind of at least one of the scenarios relies on educated guesses on these post-2030 commitments for countries that, that haven't made any commitments after 2030. Is that right? Yes, that's true. Okay, great. Just wanted to clarify that. And then also, I'm hoping you can say just a little bit more about the final scenario that you mentioned and why that was an important, maybe counterfactual for you guys to have in mind as well. The, the, global, the idea of a global carbon tax and sort of everyone working in harmony um, does seem like a, a much less likely policy outcome, but it's still, it strikes me that that's an important modeling baseline for other reasons. So can you say 
First of all, is that a fair interpretation? And then also, if so, can you say a little bit more about that? Yes, I think you can say so. But it is important to see what would be the cheapest, the most cost-efficient option, at least from a climate point of view. Of course, there's many objectives here that we cannot measure and model. Uh, many other types of, um, of, of environmental problems uh, that we cannot model, many other types of, of, say, economic competitiveness, for example, that we cannot directly model with this, with this model. But it is important to have a, a reference that we know this would be the, the most cost-efficient or cost-effective way to reach the two degrees. All right, and then the Glasgow scenarios is some kind of, if you want, a, a discoordinated action. So every country voluntarily pledges something, and we, in the end, we take stock and we have a look at is is this enough or not, and we hope that in the next uh, stock take we we raise ambition, so people will pledge more. This is good uh, in in a way. It's, it's actually working because we see that from Paris to Glasgow we did had a, a big increase in in, in ambition. But it is, it is somehow a discoordinated action. It's not, let's say, the most cost-efficient way. But countries may do it for other reasons. Uh, and this is important, for example, for air pollution reasons, for competitiveness uh, reasons. I did mention before, but... Um, so there was... And we have now companies doing pledges. You know, American Airlines pledged uh, to be net zero by 2050, Coca-Cola by 2040. Uh, we have Siemens, uh, General Motors... Uh, Ford, for example, which is a big car manufacturer, uh, pledging to be to be net zero, and this gives a sign not only to to investors, it creates a movement, but it also these companies gives them an edge for what's coming because it's not only a climate goal that we're having in mind. We're seeing, for example, the carbon border adjustment mechanism in Europe coming in, the Inflation Reduction Act, all these kind of policies that are, uh, let's say, regional uh, protectionist policies that are coming into place, Th this will place these, these companies, for example, in a better position than others. So there, there is reasons that we don't see behind of these pledges that we cannot model, such as competitiveness, for example, um, that are there too. So, that, so in a way, the discoordinated action may not make sense from a completely cost-effective climate point of view, but it may make sense from other points of view. That's what mm -hmm. I meant. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, I have asked you so many introductory questions, so many kind of tell us about the background of this questions. And now I want to make sure I give you plenty of time to talk about the good stuff here, the findings. And so what does your modeling show about the impact of of fully implementing the net zero pledges made in Glasgow. And I want to emphasize that fully implementing, because I think that's an important piece of this. Um, it does seem like, you know, there is there is remaining uncertainty about whether countries, companies, subnational entities will actually be able to meet their pledges. But for this purpose, we're sort of acting on good faith that that, that will happen. Is that right? Yes, of course. We cannot know. I mean, we assume we assume these will be fully implemented. That's for sure. We did some sensitivity on this. So we have some scenarios where you take out some countries. So those we categorized as saying uh, only announcements uh, of pledges that we have not found a policy document, for example. So we do some scenarios where we keep those in and we keep those out and we see what that matters for temperature. We do also some some assumptions on DAC availability, DAC being direct air capture, for example, which is an important um, technology. Uh, other scenarios on the year to which these pledges, uh, would, the effort would converge, the rate at which converge. So we, we try to do some, some sensitivity on that so that we, we kind of try to account for some 
of the, of the uncertainties we have on these pledges. And what we found is in the end, we come close actually to what we, we, we would expect. If we look only at temperature, and here I would ask to be looked with caution because this is just an average value of a single run, but we would find temperatures at the end between 1.6 and 1.8 degrees Celsius. So these are two degree scenarios more or less already we are seeing. And this is more or less in line with what was found by the International Energy Agency, for example. They also find 1.8 and also other articles in Maya Housen, for example, found around the same values of temperature. And so these, these are good news. But then when we look at carbon budgets, for example, we are still left uh, with some unabated emissions. So if we want to reach those levels of temperature with a very high probability, that is, we want those levels without a lower risk of failing to, to meet this target, we are left with between 220 to 680 gigatons of CO2 that are still unabated uh, when we compare this with the optimal Paris scenario, so with 1,000 uh, gigatons of CO2 uh, carbon budget. So there's still some effort there. We did get the raising ambition that we want. We, we see, for example, that these pledges, the Glasgow pledges, they mean around 80% of the reductions we would need in 2070. So this is not negligible. We are almost there. We are almost there. But there is the little, uh, this little last part that may be the difficult one. Uh, first, we need to make sure that this actually realizes, as you were saying, but there is this little, some kind of left, 20% left to do that we still need to do it. So let's see what the next global stock take takes us. Uh, but it would be important to know that these are still not enough. But I think I'm optimistic, like especially 10 years ago when I started working on this, it was before Paris. So <laughs> we've came a long way. Of course, we need, we need, you know, we need to believe that these will realize. But if they do, I think we, we are getting close. We didn't close fully the gap, but we are, we are getting closer, which, which is good news. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, there's so many sort of layers to these results as well. And maybe I can ask you to highlight um, just another couple of key findings around you know, regional differences, for example. Maybe the changing energy mix where places are, you mentioned coal phase outs or some of the pledges that have been made. How does the energy mix change? And I know that you are particularly interested in air pollution too. So if there are any um, co-benefits information that comes out of this work, any of that you'd want to highlight? Yeah, so, so, well, first of all, one of the things we should, we should say is that, as, as I said, we cannot model all of these objectives. So from a, from a simply climate perspective, uh, we are, this kind of start to make sense, but they may make sense also for other re reasons. For example, we, we do see in some regions higher air pollution co-benefits. So if we, let's say, if we are more ambitious, so if we commit in some regions to more effort than the optimal, the cost optimal Paris Agreement, we do see more avoided premature um, deaths, for example. What we also see is that this type of pledges, the Glasgow pledges, although they are these coordinated action pledges, so each country voluntarily comes in and says what they want to reduce or they, what they will be able to reduce, they mitigate the increase of inequality. So climate policies normally as I said, so what, what you would think is that you reduce emissions where the marginal abatement cost is 
is lower. And that means uh, normally low-income countries, you would reduce emission in, in low-income countries, which would be very costly for these countries. So if we have these major emitters, these major economies coming ahead and saying, I will be net zero before the time the cost-effective scenario would actually tell me to be, this not only lowers the risk of not achieving this target, but it also gives some buffer to the other regions. And, and so what we find is that it actually mitigates inequality amongst these regions which is important um, because, of course, uh, be, uh, major economies are, are, are doing more than the effort that they would be requested to do in a cost-optimal um, uh, scenario. The other thing that is important to say is that this comes at a higher cost, of course. So if it's not, uh, let's say, cost-effective, of course it comes at a higher cost. And that's why I'm saying that there may be other regions why, why, why this, this, uh, this, uh, these regions would be interested in, in doing so in pledging to more effort than what would eventually be needed. But it's important because they lower the risk of, of not achieving these targets. Right. Interesting. Okay, well, let me ask you one more substantive question. I know we're, I feel like, we again, we could talk about either travel destinations or climate modeling for a long time. But um, I did want to flag one one piece that jumped out at me where you note in the in the paper that one crucial question is to what extent co2 removal carbon dioxide removal technologies are needed so why is that why is that a crucial question and what do you find about how much carbon dioxide removal is actually deployed in these different scenarios yeah, well, well, this CDR, so carbon dioxide removal, always uh, brings uh, brings up a big debate. Uh, um, but but it is it is very important because it, it changes completely the cost of your of your mitigation efforts. When we have big regions uh, pledging to be net zero, there will be some hard to abate sectors, such as, for example, cement, steel, and also international sectors such as shipping and aviation, for example, that are very hard to abate. That you, in that case, you may use supply side measures such as CDR instead of demand reduction measures to, to abate these remaining uh, emissions. And so this will lower the cost for some countries. It will not be heterogeneous because it will depend, of course, on the capacity you have to store this CO2. And of course, these technologies depend on CCS and CCS is not yet fully mature, a fully mature technology. So there's a lot of, again, a lot of uncertainty there. But if they were to be there, um, uh, what, what we see is that because some of these big regions, big emitters, are, are actually anticipating the net zero year, uh, they will have to put into place this in order to reduce their costs or to keep their costs, uh, let's say, uh, reasonable. They will, they will have to put in place these this carbon dioxide removal technologies, one of them being DAC, so direct air capture. So it is... In that sense, that, so there is a big debate. Should we use these technologies or not? They may, for example, delay uh, decarbonization, but at some point they may also help us to avoid this, this, for example, climate tipping point, so that the triggering tipping point, so these kind of natural points of no return. Uh, these technologies being there, they can help us to avoid these this triggering points, for example, but some say they may they may delay uh, decarbonization in some countries. So there is a big debate, there is a big uncertainty on this. And we also did sensitivity on this. And the thing that the model is most sensitive about is, is the cost. Of course, not allowing for DAC increases the cost uh, for direct air capture. DAC stands for direct air capture, increases the cost for some regions a lot, by a lot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Well, again, I encourage folks to take a look at the paper because there is just a lot, a lot of interesting information in there. Um, and Laura, thank you so much for for talking us through it. It's always a pleasure. Uh, you having been on the podcast before, you sort of know the drill for our closing question. So I'll skip the explanation and just ask you, Laura, what's on the top of your stack? Yeah, so I I have not yeah I don't have anything actually right now on the top of my stack. I've been addicted to the to the to the series of uh, The Last of Us, so I have not been reading at night. But I have a book that I want to recommend. This is a book that always comes to me, and I always go to read, especially in the latest years. First. Uh, um, after COVID and now with 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 the conflict in, here in Europe, um, in, and suddenly this author was on the news for sad reasons. But this is this is kind of a dystopian book, and we don't we don't really realize how how closer we are and somehow how dystopic just crosses the line into our realities. But I think with COVID and with this conflict, we see a lot of this. And so this book is called In a Country of Last Things by Paul Auster, and just if you read just the first page, you will you will immediately. Um, let's say, revise yourself in what the author is saying. And this is the introduction of, of, a, of a dystopy. But this is actually happening in our world now. So this is the introduction to, to disaster. And so when you read just the first page, you kind of have a sense that we are, we are closely crossing the line to, to the other side of, of worlds we don't want and we cannot imagine. Mm. Okay, that's sort of a dramatic way to end. So, okay, well, thanks for those recommendations. And again, thank you so much for for chatting this morning or this afternoon in Milan. (laughs) Thank you very much. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.